0: Well, this morning we're going to finish, our, excuse me, continue in our series in the book of Colossians. And um, the book of Colossians, it's it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul from prison. It's response to this report that he heard about this church in, in Colossae uh, that was planted by this guy, Epaphras. And uh, one of the things that's going on in the first century there and the Roman Empire, is that you've got these road systems, just, and it just kind of opened the world up to everyone. It made the world a, a smaller place. Travel uh, was now much, much easier. It's opened up the world to them. The roads opened up the world to them, much like the Internet has opened up the world to us. It's just kind of made it all a smaller place. And one of the things that was coming out uh, of this church, and this is one of the things that Paul was wanting to address, so now we're starting to get into one of the major themes of this, of this letter, was that the Colossians were like, hey, man, we were wondering if this guy Epaphras is holding out on us. Like, we're not sure he told us everything. We wonder if there's like, you know, there's a higher truth. There's a, you know, we can kind of, you know, I, you know Jesus is still my number one. But, you know, I've heard about this other thing over here. Maybe we can mix those things together. And maybe Epaphras isn't telling us everything. And, and Paul's like, no, 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 this, you've got it all. Um, man, you, you know, the love that you have uh, for the saints and is evident. Uh, the faith that you have in Christ is evident, and your hope is in heaven. You're doing very, very well. And then he's going to come and say, hey, look, you can't get any higher than the revelation of Christ. He's going to make much of Christ. Uh, and he, and we, so we looked at that last week, and we're going to be doing that for really the, less, the next several weeks, just looking about why Paul said Christ was above all, that he's supreme. And, and so last week we talked about how Jesus is God, right? This is the big this is the huge truth. This is, man, he is God. He is, he is above all. He has uh, authority. And then it said, and we read it again today, it says that he is the image of the visible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, that, now that's saying that Jesus was the first one to be created. Um, you may think that. And there are some sects, or some cults that have, taken that and run with that and said that jesus was created being but what that is saying um uh is very the, uh, the contrary the firstborn that phrase was used in the old testament about 130 times and every time it had to do with status and power because in the jewish culture you're the firstborn. i mean you got it all you you know you you had the power you had this uh the status so what what paul's saying and saying he's the firstborn of all creation saying he's above all creation he has all authority uh, uh, over everything. He has authority over creation. So, like, like you and I don't have authority. Like, we can go outside today and we can scream at the top of our lungs at the atmosphere to be eighty-eight and sunny. It's just not going to happen, and you're going to look like an idiot. Um, you know, your family will be worried about you, and nothing will happen. Uh, but. Jesus man he has authority over creation. And so we're going to dive into more of that today and say that not only is he over creation but he he create he is creator. All things are made by him. All things are sustained by him. All things are made through him and for him. And you know it's that's what it says. It says for by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. All things were created by him. So this Christmas, man, we're gonna we're gonna celebrate the birth of Jesus. But the birth of Jesus was in the beginning of Jesus. It's kind of hard to get your head around that. It, the birth of Jesus was in the beginning of Jesus. He he always existed. He always was there. In, in Revelation. Uh, written by the Apostle John, three times he quotes Jesus as saying that I am the Alpha, I am the Alpha and Omega, I am the beginning and the end, I am the beginning. He was, he was there. Yes, Jesus uh, entered creation, but, but before he entered creation, he created it. So, so he made the tree that his manger was constructed out of, that he was placed in, when he was born, he he made the tree that made the cross that he was nailed on. He created it and he entered into it. I mean, that's what it says uh, in, in Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings and the very uh, very very beginning. Genesis one one, um, Moses, uh, he writes this. He says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the now, created the heavens and the earth." Now, this is going to come as a massive shock to you, but the Bible wasn't written in English, right? Okay, it's written in another language. And this other language was the Hebrew, rank, uh, the Hebrew language. And this word um, uh, this word God in the Hebrew is this word Elohim. Can you say that, Elohim? Elohim. And, and, and the weird thing about this is that it's grammatically plural. It's referring to one God, but strangely, it's multiple uh, persons. It's it's. And that gets picked up as you read through Genesis, Genesis 1, 26. Um, it says, let us, right? So was God like talking to himself now? Is he kind of schizophrenic? What's going on? Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. It's talking, as you read on the Bible, you, you pick up on this idea that, that God is one, but he's, he's multiple. He's three. He's, he's God the Son, God the, uh, God the Father, uh, God the Spirit. John 1. Uh, in the beginning uh, was the word. The word there is, Je- is referring to Jesus. Uh, uh, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. Speaks of relationship. They were together. God, uh, God the Father, God the Son, they were together in relationship. And the word was God. So he just kind of says, that. hey, you know, Jesus uh, was and is God. And Jesus said that about himself. Because if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I, I and the Father are one. We're together. And then at the end of his life, he, he kind of does what's called the Great Commission. And he says, all authority I give to you. Now go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so, so this is the, the framework for why uh, Paul can say, hey, Jesus is creator. He, he, create, he was there. He was a part of it. And he in, in our uh, text today, it said that he created all things, visible and invisible. He created all things. He created the small things. He created the small things. Your body produces two to ten million brand new red cells every one to two seconds. I mean, that is unbelievable. Uh, You have a hundred million white cells in your bones right now. And so your body is producing new and red and white uh, blood cells in the millions at, at every second. And, and just producing them at this crazy rate. But here's a question. How does your body know which ones to produce? How does it know to produce more of you and not more of someone else? I'm glad you asked. It's called DNA. DNA um, in your cells, which are millions, have in each one of your cells has roughly six feet of DNA coiled inside of it. And DNA is the map or code that kind of tells your body you know, h- how to make more of you. And and not someone else. And there is nearly 80 billion miles of instruction in your body if you were to lay um, lay over end each strand of DNA. 80 billion miles of instruction that would span the distance from here to the sun 400 times. All in your body. A billionth of a millionth of a cell... Is hardwired to be you and no one else. Not bad for an explosion four billion years ago. Um, Cells, but it even gets smaller than that. Cells are made up of something called an atom. And to see an atom with the naked eye, you would have to be, there's you, you would have to be one billionth of an inch tall. And you'd have a really high voice. And um, that's how small atoms are. Uh, An atom, the earth is to an orange, as an orange is to an atom. If the number of atoms, to count the number of atoms in a raindrop, okay, a raindrop. You got a raindrop? Looks like this. To count the number of a... To count, should we use a pair? Or no, it's a raindrop. Okay. To count the number of atoms in a raindrop, it would take every person in the, in the world, about six billion people, it would take every person in the world to count, um, you would have to count, uh, every person in the world would count one atom per second for 20,000 years. Atoms. Are small. And you, it gets, I mean, in the late 19th century, the subatomic world got known to us. You know, if you split an atom, if like you have those kind of tools in your garage, and if you did that, you would find that there are more than a hundred subatomic particles, quartz, leptons, all this crazy stuff. That's way above my pay grade, so I won't even get into that. But just to say, Jesus made all that. And he made, uh, he made the big things in our galaxy, the Milky Way, which it was a galaxy before it was a candy bar uh, in our, there are, there are a hundred, I'm so afraid to get this wrong. There are a hundred billion, one more time, there are a hundred billion, um, stars in our galaxy and scientists believe there are roughly 125 billion galaxies With all 100 billion stars, I guess somebody counted uh, themselves. And uh, now, where this is our Milky Way, where you know where you are, you have no idea, do you? Where do you think this is not the sun? Where? Show us the sun. There is the sun. Can you see the sun? I can't either. I'm looking right here. I cannot see the sun. Now, the sun, the sun. If you wanted to fill the sun up with Earth. Like, hey, I'd like to fill the the sun up with earth. You're like, pass me the earth. You know, (laughs) you would need to pass me 1.25 million earths to match how big the sun is. And we can't even see it. Where are you? What's showing there you're at, right there. You didn't know That's Google Earth, right there. You can I can (laughs) see you right and just take my word for it. In 1966, a guy by the name of John Lennon said, I think we're bigger than Jesus. Can we go back there? I think we're bigger than Jesus. Now, Jesus created our galaxy and 125 billion other galaxies. We can't even see the earth, much less the beetles on the earth. I think Jesus has got them beat. What do you think? He created it all. Jesus created it all. But he doesn't just... He didn't just create the earth. He sustains it. Our blue and green planet is flying through the galaxy at 67,000 miles an hour, spinning at the rate of 1,000 miles an hour, which is why you should always wear a seatbelt. And (laughs) also flying in our galaxy are these meteors, right? They're flying through. And if one of these meteors was to hit planet earth, it would be goners for us. It should not be good. So there are bigger, you know, we're not the biggest planet. Um, We're not even in the middle. Um, There are other planets that have bigger gravitational pulls that pull in these meteors flying through our galaxy so that we're not destroyed. He's sustaining our earth. The earth receives 99% of its energy from the sun. Every second, the sun supplies the earth with 4 million tons of energy. Four million tons of energy. That's like, you know, if you were to blow up a million elephants a second. I mean, that's how much energy. I and mean, you're talking like a lot of energy. Four million tons of energy per second. Within an 11-year sun cycle, this level of energy that we receive from the sun that we are depending on varies less than one-tenth of a percent. Jesus is sustaining the earth all from 93 million miles away 92 million miles away no life on earth 94 million miles away no life on earth not only that but most planets tilt straight up we're like this at 23.5 degrees and that all happens because of the gravitational pull 40% of what we get from the sun 40% we get from the, the moon you guys know that makes it tilt that way because if it, if it didn't tilt that way, the sun would get really hot on one area, it would never leave that one area and blow up the planet and be too cold on another and mess up the planet. 25 degrees, no life on earth. 21 degrees, no life on earth. Hydrogen must convert 7 one-thousandths of its mass into helium to sustain life on earth. 6 one-thousandths, no life on earth. 8 one-thousandths, no life on earth. Or Atmosphere consists of 21% oxygen, 23% no life on earth, 19% no life on earth. The ocean is 3.4% salt. Your blood is also 3.4% salt. If either the ocean or your blood had 4%, no life on earth, 2%, no life on earth. This is what's called the science of fine-tuning. It's like there are all these, there's hundreds there's hundreds and hundreds of these uh, dials, so to speak, um, that, um, that, that the science is. there's like hundreds and hundreds of these, these things. They're just kind of like fine-tuned to the right measure that if any one of them was off a little bit, it would not only mess up this thing, but it would mess up all of them, and we would all be goners. It's almost, scientists will say, it's almost that something or someone, is making sure that all of these things are just right. Jesus created the earth and he is sustaining the earth. He is holding all things together. Now, now someone push back on this and say, well, wait a minute, you know, that's this is scientifically you know, impossible. And uh, you know, science, you know, science has just proved it. Science Science, when it comes to the beginning of the earth, when it comes to how the world is created, science has has actually done a lot to point us to a creator. It hasn't proven it. You can't prove the creation of the world by God or through evolution in a science lab, right? You need need experimentation uh, to make something scientifically proven. And the last time I checked, no one's done that. You can't, you can't prove it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things in science that have that point to creation. Uh, we'll, I'll tell you this in here in a second, but there's been some things that science has done to disprove evolution. But the reality is, I don't think Christians should get in this kind of debate like they have for the last 50 years. It's like, we'll go and we'll prove that this is you know, so this is scientifically l- legit or whatever, because the reality is I, I don't even know that science is, well, I know that science is not the highest form of understanding. It's a way of knowing. It's a way of learning, but it has its limitations. And all you have to do is look at history uh, to know that. Science has told us things about the universe that we were like, uh-oh, that was wrong, uh-oh, that was wrong, uh-oh, that was wrong. But there is a lot of science. But I just kind of want to like, push that to uh, the side, because the main reason why people believe that God created the earth is, is by faith. So Hebrews 3, uh, excuse me, Hebrews eleven three. Uh, 3, that writer that we don't know, he uh, he said that um, that we believe that God created the world by faith. And let me just say this, those who believe in evolution do so by faith. Roger Penrose, who's a mathematician, a friend of Stephen Hawking, uh, kind of a world-renowned atheist out of England, says the probability, the probability uh, that this all started from some Big Bang, life as we know it all started from Big Bang, Big Bang, Big Bang, is 1 over 10 to the 10,124th power. So in other words, it's one over one. It's going to take me a while to do 10,000 000 zeros, but just bear with me. Okay, you, so if it's a lot of zeros. Or another way to look at it, it's the same probability of you winning the lottery every week for the next 27 years. Now, the majority of educated America will not spend a dollar, waste a dollar on the lottery. Why would you risk your entire life to win it? 1,400 times plus in a row? Well, you would by faith. It's not, it's not even probable. I, don't even, I guess nothing is really impossible, but 10, 000, 1 over 10,000 000 zeros is about as close as an impossible. So all I'm saying, I'm just trying to level the playing field here. I'm not trying to make some big deal here. I'm just saying like, hey, look, we, it, it's both by faith. It's both by faith. Faith in what? If you believe in evolution, faith in what? Faith that chaos produces precision. You you have faith that the impersonal has produced personhood, that the unintelligent has produced the intelligent faith, and even what the mathematicians in the evolutionary world will say is statistically impossible. George Wald was an American scientist who won the Nobel Prize Peace Prize in 1967, uh, and he was uh, an atheist and believer in evolution. In August uh, 1954, he said this. He says, when it comes to the origin of life, we only have two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved 100 years ago by Louis Pasteur. Did you know that? Ready and others. That leads us scientifically to one To only one possible conclusion that life arose as a supernatural creative act of God. Now, he doesn't stop there. He should have, but he doesn't. I will not accept that philosophically. He didn't say scientifically. I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. (sighs) Kind of a thing. All right. Um,. He says, therefore, I choose to believe in which I know is scientifically impossible. I didn't say that. He said it. I choose to believe in that which is scientifically impossible, a spontaneous generation arising um, to evolution. Okay, here's, I'm just, whether you believe in evolution, I don't, you know, I, if you're here and you're like, I, I think I believe in, I don't, I'm not really sure. All I'm saying, all I want to do here is I'm not trying to prove creation or whatever through sci- because I, I just don't think it's the realm of science. I think it's, it's, a, it's a different realm of knowing. It's a different realm of knowing. And so I want to just leave you with a couple thoughts to chew on from the non-scientific world because your belief in the origin of the world doesn't just describe what you think about an historical event, but it, it says something about who you think you are and how you view your future. Number one, true belief in evolution leads to despair. Like if you actually believe this, it will lead you to despair. Evolutionary worldview says that you come from no one, you exist for no cause, and when you die, you go nowhere. Mr. Russell, a well-known atheist, writes this. Man's origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves, and his beliefs are but the outcome of an accidental collision of atoms that no fire, no heroism, heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life from beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages and all the devotion and all the inspiration and all the noonday brightness of the human genius are destined to extinction in the vast, of the, in the vast death of the solar system. Kind of an encouraging guy here. And that the whole temple of a man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe and ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only, this is unbelievable, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's salvation henceforth be safely built. Jesus, as a creator, says that you have a purpose, that you are not an accident, that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And of all the billion, if you know anything about DNA and stuff, of all the billions and trillions of possibilities that he could have created, he chose you and there's no one like you. You are absolutely unique. There, there has never been one like you and there never, one, there never will be one like you. Ephesians 2:10 says that you are the creative overflow of God, that you have been predestined for a purpose to walk in things specifically that He is designed for you to do And I, and I know what I know about what's in your Soul, whether you believe in Jesus or not, is that I think that we all have this yearning and desire for what is transcendent. We have this yearning and desire that we believe that our that our life uh, can achieve something and it matters. That's why we work. That's why we toil. That's not why we're not just sitting in the corner of some dark room boiled a, you know, in some ball or whatever. We're we're like living. We're 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 trying because we believe that we are created for a purpose an evolutionary worldview. That's all I want to say. This is something for you to chew on. If you play that thing out, it leads to despair. As this guy said. Number two, true belief in evolution teaches you to not only be passive about the world's sufferings, but encourages you to celebrate social injustice. I'm going to say it again. And I really believe this. True belief in evolution teaches you to not only be passive about the world's suffering, but celebrates social injustice. One of the most intellectual, intellectually inconsistencies that I know of exists on college campuses that on one hand promotes and lifts up this belief in evolution, but yet there's this outcry for social justice. So there are people right now, uh, there's an outcry right now for justice in Sudan, uh, in Somalia, uh, but if evolution, of natural selection, of survival of the fittest is how we got to where we are today, why do we care that people are dying of AIDS in Uganda? Why do we care, why are we digging wells in Darfur? Why, why, why are we pushing back in, in on like women and children being sold into slavery? Well, because there's oppression. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we got here through natural selection, if we got here through survival of the fittest, that belief system says in order for us to be all that we can be, the weak ones amongst amongst us must die. So why are we spending billions, if not trillions of dollars trying to cure AIDS, trying to cure cancer, when obviously nature is trying to off some of us? And if we were truly enlightened, we would just let them die, because that is the evolutionary process. It is a worldview that teaches you to be, if you actually believe it, which I think I think that a lot of people really don't. But if you put that out there, what you're saying is, yeah, I I see that the the way the world got here is that you know the, the strong have to eat the weak. But there's everything inside of our soul, everything inside of our being that says, no, 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 no. The strong should not eat the weak. The strong should fight for the weak. The gospel is the strong died for the weak. The gospel is the one with all the power. Let go of his power to those who are powerless. That, I don't know where you're at today in your belief system, that I believe speaks to your soul more than any other truth. I, yeah, you can't test that in a lab. You can't figure that out. But I'm telling you, in, the, in our deepest, in the deepest places of our soul, We don't believe that. If you believe, you celebrate the strong eating the weak. Atheism, evolution, I mean, it's just a natural, perfectly logical worldview to hold if you think the strong should eat the weak. Makes total sense. But if you believe that you have a higher purpose, if you believe that there's something more out there, that there's injustice that must be made right, I want you to stay tuned to the gospel because I think it will show you a life that you know in the deepest places of your soul that you want to live. Well, if there's a God, then why are there suffering? I, you know what? I don't know if on this side of heaven that we'll ever really truly know. I don't know that there's enough wisdom to handle that question. I don't, I don't know that, but here's what I do know. I know that, that God that Jesus did not sit passively by while the world was spinning out of control. God does not sit it, sit passively by why, while the world is experiencing suffering, but he himself became a victim of injustice. He entered our time-space world. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a human, not just a human, but a poor human, he took the form of a servant and he lived for other people. And then he was falsely accused. He was a part of a bogus trial. He was tortured and beaten and he was murdered on a Roman cross. It was the greatest act of injustice that has ever, that the world has ever seen. And we always elevate the, the level of, of injustice if it falls upon those who are innocent. So it's like why we get all, you know, women and children, um, you know, if they, if they uh, suffer injustice, it's like an like extreme form of it. Some, you know, terrorists, they, you know, it's like, well, they deserve it or whatever. But women and children. Or someone like Mother Teresa. Or Nelson Mandela falsely accused, falsely tried, beaten, nailed to a cross. Here's a man who walked the face of the earth. He healed thousands of people. He went alongside and he spoke and lifted up women and children. And in every culture, this is in every single culture in the first century, women and children were treated a notch above property. In fact, in most cases they were property. Jesus lifted them up. He went to the fringes and he loved uh, the tax collector. He loved the drunkard. He loved the, center, the sinner. And he brought them in. So you can say what you want. I don't know. I don't know why there's tornadoes. I don't, I, I mean, I, I point to sin, but I don't know why good people suffer. But here's what I do know. I know that Jesus Christ did not take a pass on suffering. I know Jesus Christ did not take a pass on He Himself becoming a victim of injustice. And here's what he's trying to do. He is gathering followers from all over the world who want to uh, line their life up with his cause. And so what Christians are, what Christians are meant to be, they are to be like Jesus and absorb the injustice they see around them. They're meant to give away their money. They're meant to give away their power. They're meant to serve. They're meant to come near. Uh, They're not meant to uh, seek first their own comfort, their own ease, but they're, they're meant to lay it all aside to to shed light on the goodness and the grace of God and to help uh, their fellow man. Evolution says, eh, let them die. The gospel, the, the new birth that happens inside of us, says I was created for a purpose. I was created uh, for meaning. I, 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 this, this is wrong. Where does your conscience come from? Where's that come from? Who decided wh- what our conscience would say or not? No, it's, it's not some like mishaps in our brain. This is the fingerprint of God guiding us in this life. That's why we will do a benevolence offering this Christmas, is because we want to participate and. Addressing where there's a, a major power difference and 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 uh, bring bring help to those who need help. Now here's the thing: if Jesus is Creator God, there are some implications because it says here that all things are made by Him, sustained by Him, and are made for Him. That has massive implications, which is why in the end, I think we have a problem with God. It's kind of funny to me, because I think the two major tenets of atheisms are number one, God doesn't exist, and number two, I hate him. I mean, I don't believe in the unicorn, but I don't, I mean, it's like, I don't hate the unicorn. It's like, but there's something in us that like wants the rebel against authority, and I think, and we don't have all the time to get into it, but I think that's where it lies. Because in fact, that's what Paul says in Romans 1, if you read that, Paul says that everyone knows about, everyone knows God. Everybody has knowledge of God. There's not some who who know about God and those who don't. We all know about God. But here's what happens: there's two groups of people: those who worship God in light of that truth, and those who suppress that truth. Just like that guy, that quote um, uh, George Wall. I said, I'm just gonna suppress. I know this is impossible, but I'm gonna suppress that truth. You have to. It's what we do. And so, yeah, there's some implications. If he's created God, number one, he's not an add-on to your life. He's not some, someone you stick in your pocket and take out when you need him. I mean, he's creating galaxies and stars and universes, and he's putting it all just right, the very micro and the very macro. I think this guy has something to say about what our life should be. And when you see him as a creator of God, when you begin to see ah, he, I, you. You submit to him. If you're a believer, you, you, he owns you twice over. He owns everyone. If you're a believer, he owns you twice over, like a twice baked potato. You're a twice owned person. You get up here, all right. And so, um, so yeah, because you were—he has created you, all right. So you know, you create stuff. You own. You know, you own it. And then like you rebelled, you said, hey you, God. Yeah, hey you God, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, and you ran and you ran and you ran like a foolish child running out in the middle of the street. God in his mercy did not sit passively by, but he ran, out of, he ran in after you by his grace, overcame you, and it says that he bought you with a price. You were sold into slavery. When you sinned, you, you, you willingly put yourself under the demonic rule of Satan, sin, and death. Jesus paid the ransom price with his own life, and by his grace, he bought you. He bought you with his blood, and he owned. That's what Paul said. You've been bought with a price. So he owns. submit your life to him. Submit your life to him. And here's the deal. When you give your life to him, when you surrender your life to him, you get his life. You get his life. And that's an amazing, an amazing deal. It also means um, that he is a designer, which means he has some things in your he has some things to say about what life should be like. And so when you see things in the Bible that, you know, when the Bible speaks out, hey, this is, this is a command of God, these aren't like arbitrary. It's not like, hey, I want you to, uh, let me see, stand on one foot and scratch your head for five hours. Why? Ah, just because I'm God and I want you to do this. He, he like gives us things to do that are for our good. He gave us things like, I you mean, know, the rhythm of life should be work and rest. He gave us a Sabbath. Jesus said, hey, the Sabbath is not for God, it's for man. He didn't make the Sabbath for himself. He made it for us. Now, we've always, since in the garden, we've said, God's holding out on us. He's got something hidden behind his back that he's not telling us, so I don't trust what he says. That's what sin is. It's not believing God. And so we, we, we ha- we've had that in our nature, which is why we have to be born again we still have those haunting thoughts, even as believers. Can God really be trusted? Can God really be trusted? That's a fundamental question. Jeremiah, the prophet, in chapter 29 of his book in the Old Testament, he says, I believe that God's plans for me and for you are for your good. God has good things for you. He wants to bring you into life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and life. You believe in me. Trust me. Follow me. Do as I do. Walk with me. If you ask for bread, I'm not going to give you a stone. If you ask for fish, I'm not going to give you a serpent. I'm going to give you good things. So he gives us things. So we, we, we don't trust. We, we have a difficult time. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Things like giving, for example. He he. he He gave us the tithe, which, you know, isn't this rule that if we don't do, God won't love us or anything like that. But he gave that to us for us, for our hearts, for our benefit, not for his benefit. It's not like God wants, oh, he wants new hardwood floors this year. You know, like, that's, he needs more money. No. He, like, he made money. He made the universe. He sustains it. He's all right. He created it all out of Nothing. He doesn't need anything from us. But so, why did he do that? Well, he, he's not trying to get something from you. He's trying to get money from getting you. So he said, Here's the deal. All of it's mine. I'm giving you 100%. You, I, I, you, you give back 10%. And the reason why he did that was for our benefit so that we know we would, we would never ever forget, but actually, God owns it all. And by virtue of doing that, it's a reminder that actually God owns it all. And what he doesn't want you to do is to go sideways in your belief and begin to think that you're somehow self-sustaining. That you did this. That you decided to be born in America. That you decided, you know, you, you decided that. You decided which parents you would be born to. No. God did. God put it all there. He put the ambition that you have is from Him. The savvy you have is from Him. The looks that you have are from Him. Whatever thing that you would say is, is nothing that you have on your own. He created it all, and right now He's sustaining it all. In a fine-tuned way, He's keeping your blood at three point four percent salt. He's keeping that DNA, making sure you're, it's still you and not like the Hulk or something or create. You know what? It's it's all going to be you. He's like, I don't want you to forget this because I know what money's like. You can either serve me or you can serve money. You you can go out. So I'm giving this to you for you. Now, our challenge is do we trust him? Do we trust him? Do you trust your designer? He's giving you the choice. He doesn't, doesn't force you in anything picture we see of Jesus in the Bible is someone who's knocking. someone who's knocking the door down. Do you trust him? Here's how you walk. Trust him. Say, God, I've submitted my life to you. If you've never done that before, today, man, today's your day. But I've submitted my life to you. There's areas in my life where I'm not surrendered to you. I want to be surrendered. I want to line my life up with you because I trust you. There's something that is in my heart or in my actions or in my mind that's not of you, I don't want it because I trust you. I trust you. Why don't you get out your communication card?